Here's one of the reasons I'm really excited about the conversation we're going to have today because it's with a playwright and a screenwriter. Both of those are very creative careers in my way of thinking. Yeah, we don't always think about the words people say in movies and plays, but without the writers, there'd be no storyline. Yeah, and there would be no exciting adventures, right? Right. It's all about the story wrapped in special effects. For sure. Hope you've been having a wonderfully creative week. I'm Rod Jones, and we celebrate what people love to do creatively by giving them a voice, and we share with you how you can live a more creative life. And I'm Angie Jones. Welcome to Thought Road Podcast. We invite you to subscribe wherever you listen, and we focus on sharing with everyone how they can think, be, and live more creatively with their own passions. For sure, and that's a good thing. So, Angie, how about telling our listeners who we will be having as our exciting guest today? Well, our guest today is Neil Cohen, and Neil is a playwright, journalist, television, and screenwriter who co-wrote and co-directed the indie cult comedy Chief Zabu and is the author of American Gargoyles. Very talented. Mm-hmm. You know, I also want to add that we will learn a lot from Neil when it comes to following your own creative dreams. Speaking of creative dreams, I know we have a lot of, I know we don't have a lot of time, but uh, how about you setting this interview up, setting the stage for this interview with your timely quote? Okay. Well, the quote for this episode, very cool. I love this quote is you see opportunity. Opportunity is like a window. Every once in a while it opens. If you're ready for that opportunity, So be prepared, work hard, and follow your dreams. And this quote is by Nita, N-I-T-A, Strauss. And she is a guitarist that has toured with Alice Cooper and many bands. That's a great quote. Yeah. But you know, I had no idea who she was. I'm glad you found this quote. Then I looked her up, and there was one thing that really fascinated me, anyway, was that she launched her album with a Kickstarter campaign. You know, it's so cool that Nita launched her album on Kickstarter. It's a great way to get your album financed and get it out there so people can see it. You know, I I know our interview with Neil is going to be fascinating because he is incredibly creative and we can all learn from Neil's creative journey. So let's go on to the interview and hear what Neil has to share. Yeah, this is going to be a good one. Hello, Neil. Welcome to the Thought Road Podcast. You know, you were introduced to us by Madison Marie McIntosh. Love her name. She's an opera singer, and we both know her and met her actually on Instagram. In fact, we had Madison as a guest here on our podcast in season one, but we'll talk about her a little bit later. Yes. Hi, Neil. It's so exciting to have you with us. And I must tell our listeners that you are a playwright, illustrator, television and screenwriter and a director. And you also are a libertist. In other words, a very creative talent. And I hope I said that correctly. Well, he's a very talented person. You got that right. Yes. Hi, Neil. Well, hi, both of you. And it's so exciting to be here. And uh, 
I, I suppose when I hear that list of things I did, uh, it, it's a testament that if uh, you set your bar very low, you could do a lot of different things in life. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> well, it's great to be with you guys. Well, it's good to have you with us today. And, um, you know, before we start our interview, we always ask our guests what they had for breakfast. So, Neil, what did you have this morning? Well, actually, I had, of all things, hot cereal, because my wife decided that's what I needed to have a proper breakfast. Uh But uh, luckily, she provided a whole lot of maple syrup to pour on top of it. So I don't want anyone to think that they didn't have an appropriate breakfast. I, I had hot cereal oatmeal that uh, has enough carbs as a, as a loaded croissant. So that's my morning. Well, sometimes you need that oatmeal in the well, morning. Well, the maple syrup has uh, nutrients. It, it has, has enzymes. It has enzymes, enzymes in it for so you. Yeah. You actually had a pretty, it's very good It's actually very breakfast. healthy. Yeah. Oh, well, okay. I feel a lot better already. <laughs> <laughs> so, Neil, there's so much we want to discuss with you today, uh, but I'd like to know Tell us where you're originally from and where you currently live now. I'm originally from Queens, New York, New York City. And right now I live, uh, we split our time between Santa Monica, California, and a little town in the Hudson Valley called uh, Accord, New York, a very rural town uh, about two hours north of New York. Oh, sounds nice That sounds charming. And so where did you actually grow up then in Queens? Oh, yeah, Queens. My whole life I grew up in Queens. Yes. In an, in an apartment complex in eastern Queens. Yes. Wow. So that did must... you play out of the street, stick ball, stick ball and all that stuff? Well, it was the craziest neighborhood you can imagine because it was in the early 50s. They did a planned community that was supposed to be a, a very uh, a special and new. So it was clusters of little apartment buildings, all separated by curving streets, and they plopped it on top of what was once a very fancy country club golf course. So between the apartments, they left the fairways. So we actually grew up in, in apartment buildings, but out the back door were these, you know, huge, mature oak and maple trees and rolling hills. So I thought I lived too uh, you know, two hours outside of New York when I grew up in New York. That's wild. That Isn't is that wild. Interesting? Do, you, do you have a favorite childhood memory you would like to share with us? That's so funny you say that because it actually relates back to that. I, I it was certainly was not uh, much of a sportsman. And so it's, uh, an, it's a memory inside the apartment. Um, I was a very quiet, uh, uh, shy kid who liked to play with clay and do that sort of stuff. My brother was a larger than life character and he built a rocket ship in our living room out of tinfoil and erector set parts. (laughs) And so in our living room for about a year and a half, there was a rocket ship with lights blinking that made noises. And my father, who was a working guy, would come home from work and wouldn't 
say anything. It was fine with him. He'd sit in his chair with an unlit cigar, fall asleep watching the ball game. My mom would be cooking up some Spanish rice. I'd be playing with clay. And, uh, you know, people would come visit the house and would think it was weird. But to me, it was, uh, you know, the, the safest, nicest place. And if it was snowing outside, all the better. So that's my favorite childhood memory. That's a great memory. A great and I like memory. the fact that rocket sounds fascinating. Yeah, that does sound cool. I mean, is there anything you can't do with an erector set? I found out from watching my brother, there's nothing I could do with an erector <laughs> set. <laughs> from watching him, that you know, there was suspension bridges going different places. It was it was remarkable. Well, I have to admit that was my favorite toy when I was growing up. I love that thing. You kids out there, go to the flea market, find an erector. <laughs> yeah, set. there you go for sure. True. I think Bring that it, it would be so creative. Your life will be changed forever. Exactly. I think, you know, so many kids, I don't know that they know about erector sets anymore. So if they can find it like on eBay or whatever, they should definitely try it out. But so many young oh, adults yeah. don't know how to use a wrench or a screwdriver. Well, that is very true these I mean, days. They don't yeah. understand tools at all. Very true. So also go to the flea market and get an old toolbox and just start taking things apart, which is not something I knew how to do. But like eight months ago, I started taking things apart. It's amazing what's inside things. You'll have a ball. Yeah, it's all a kind of a creative discovery, right? It really yeah. is. Yeah. Well, you learn a lot about how things work. That's for sure. And so impressed by whoever it was who designed and thought up and built them. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, you know, we were talking about different talents that you have earlier. And I wanted to talk about the fact that you're a playwright. Can you tell us a little bit about that, Neil? Well, yeah, you know, like a lot of things in my life and career, it's kind of a backward stumble into it. And uh, I was somebody who had some literary or creative uh, pretensions in my 20s, mm -hmm. uh, which mostly spent in a cloud. Um, but I was tending bar and waiting on tables and busboying in restaurants. And it was, gee, I, I got to do something uh, by the time I'm 30, that's creative. So I'll just feel like this has not all been wasted time. Right. Um, and, and that was a time back in New York where you could literally rent a, a storefront or a garage for $100 a month. And so uh, I decided if I write a play and uh, I'll grab some actors and put on a play. And uh, that, uh, I mean, the pat on the back is that I actually finished the play, actually found the actors, and we actually put it on. And uh, that sort of jump-started a career as a writer. That's so interesting. So interesting. You went and through the whole process. I was working in. So, you know, I, I always scoff at, oh, write about what you know, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, write about what you know. And those actors, did any of them go on? And to bigger and better things. Bigger and better things, yeah. <laughs> Well, one of the actors happened to be um, a guy named Bobby Boris Pickett, who did the song The Monster Mash. Oh, you're kidding. <laughs> and oh, wow. our director was an actor who we met in the bar, a guy named Michael Murphy, who had a, a, you know, a very long, successful career as an actor. He was the director. He was friends with a guy 
who had been in a number of Hollywood uh, uh, films when he was a kid. He was a kid actor, and now he was a grown-up and wasn't working a lot, and he was such a great actor. He was the lead Mm -hmm. and the director, and this guy both knew Bobby Pickett from when they lived in California. And and so they said, how about Bobby Pickett for this guy? Well, I got to tell you, this guy, Bobby Pickett, was maybe the best actor. (laughs) Wow, (laughs) how, how wild. It was so wild to just see this guy with complete calmness, no uh, sense of anxiety. Every night, just hold that stage sitting there doing doing what he had to do. And uh, boy, the audience just loved him. And then when they found out who he was, forget about it. It was great. <laughs> that is so and wild. And then Susan Lang, there was an actress named Susan Lang who's had a wonderful career. She's uh, done a few films, and now she uh, uh, is kind of the go-to person as a stand-in on any kind of dramatic uh, female role on Broadway, uh, adult roles, and uh, often, you know, uh, over the last couple of years, because of what's going on, has stepped in and goes on stage, and everyone loves her. She's great. That's so wonderful. I think it's amazing that you were able to pull all that talent together. Mm -hmm. I mean, how... How did you manage off, that? Yeah. Did you just cruise restaurants and stuff and say, yeah, you know, you know play? Yeah. One person knew another person, knew another person. Um, it, 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 it was all friends. There were, there was literally the, we had one very tiny role. A guy shows up in the second act for 10 minutes at the end of the second act. And we couldn't ask any of our friends to do that when everybody else is on stage, uh, you know, uh, chewing it up and having a ball. So we actually did a little casting and a guy uh, wandered in and we said, "Okay, we'll cast that guy. Well, of course, that guy who shows up in the last 10 minutes of the play uh, winds up uh, getting cast in a movie. (laughs) Oh, boy. And so that was like the funniest, you know, I mean, that's such a Hollywood or Broadway kind of story. Yeah, for it sure. really is. I, I want to ask you a quick a quick follow up on that. Yeah. Um, I think this is a very creative thing to think about. Mm-hmm. What, Neil, what did you what was the one thing that you learned that really stuck with you throughout the remainder of your career from that experience? Um, okay. Not to ape the Nike logo, but I will just do it. I mean, just like doing it in in my career, what's helped me in my career is you're as a writer in Hollywood, whatever, you're always asking permission to do stuff and you got to just really carve out an area in your life where you just do what you want to do. And that was the main thing of just here's something I wanted to do. So I forced myself to do it Mm -hmm. um you know of course with expectations of tremendous success which which did not come out of that show but one thing did lead to another um and just how you are also um the dependent is not the right word but you're dependent on a lot of people to make your own dream happen so you just really want to be nice and take care of people and hope that they take care of you. It doesn't always happen. Usually it doesn't. But but if you don't set that target mm-hmm. that we're all going to work together, we're all going to try to have some fun, we're all going to get pie in our face, whatever. Um, but let's just keep rolling with it. 
um, that that's a huge lesson that occasionally I've forgotten, but I always remind myself and try to get back to that's that. A, that's a great lesson. You articulated that very well. I yeah. mean, you there's a lot of camaraderie there. And so what was your involvement in television and your career as a screenwriter then? Right. Well, you know, I, I, I did this show and uh, a, a big shot agent came down and he saw the show and he told me afterwards he thought it was great. And uh, I said, oh, terrific. Do you think you could get me some work? And he said, oh, absolutely. Come to my office on Monday and you could start answering my phone. <laughs> so, uh, Not the job that, that you wanted, big, I bet. Right. So that was the big break. And then from answering uh, the phones at this guy's office and mm-hmm. being kind of miserable doing that, um, a couple of characters wandered into this office. And one of them was... Uh, Robert Downey's father, a guy named Robert Downey Sr., Uh who was a very, very notable uh, director of avant-garde, low-budget, crazy movies during the the 60s -hmm. and 70s, -hmm. and a guy named Zach Norman, who also, uh, people may remember him from Romancing the Stone and Mm -hmm. uh, a a lot of crazy movies that he was in, who was a producer and an actor, very uh, successful in that world, Mm -hmm. and the big shot agent had no idea who either of these guys were and said, uh, 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 you take care of them, Neil. I have no idea who these people are. Get them out of my office. So uh, I bonded with these guys. And this Zach Norman said, uh, you seem miserable. What do you want to do? And I said, I want to write stuff. I don't want to be here answering the phones. And he said, OK, show me something you've written. And at that point, I had been writing scripts on the side and nobody would read them. Well, this guy read it and he said, quit your job and come work for me. And so that's what kind of sparked my life as a kind of legit uh, a writer of films because we did get a, a movie made. And then suddenly I had scripts around that people would see and say, oh, uh, come or do a rewrite on this or, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, maybe work on this TV show uh, uh, sad to report that uh, uh, back in the, uh, you know, the 80s, things were a little looser and lighter and you could stumble on people and suddenly get a job writing something for not a lot of money, but, you know, you'd get a job. Gosh, that sounds so interesting. And, and you know, tell us about the movie that you co-directed. Well, it was with this guy, uh, Zach Norman, and we were uh, writing uh, a, a bunch of scripts and uh, uh, trying to, to sell them and set them up. And uh, Zach would star in them. Mm-hmm. And we would be the writers and whatnot. And But he was also in the real estate business, and uh, he had closed some real estate deal. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually I'm a very peppy fellow, but I'm not actually very aggressive. And I just kind of pressed the aggressive button mm-hmm. in my brain and said, said I, I got to get this money before this guy spends it on something else. And so I right. said, um, we got to take this money, make a movie. We're going to direct it. Let's do it. And he said, yeah, OK, let's do it. So it, it was based on uh, a, a true story from his uh, real estate experience mm-hmm. of uh, 
being called to a meeting by uh, some very big Hollywood producers um, who said, uh, report to the Sherry Netherland Hotel. There's a big meeting you have to be at. We've, there's going to be big money in this meeting. Mm-hmm. And he went to the meeting, and there was a guy named Chief Clement Capu from uh, Namibia was there who was trying to get recognition for his country at the UN. And Zach walked into the meeting and immediately recognized the man was surrounded by every single hustler in the East Coast from Philadelphia. Oh, to my goodness. I bet. Every hustler was surrounding this guy, waiting to prey on him and rip him off. And Zach uh, just kind of, it, it, for some reason, Warren Beatty and Elizabeth Taylor were there. <laughs> and, oh, boy. Um, and a guy whispered in his ear, Zach. Uh, it's no more Wall Street. It's no more mergers and acquisitions. The name of the game today is countries. So he got disgusted and left the meeting and came back and told me the story. And I said, well, that's our movie. So uh, so was born this movie uh, called Chief Zabu about a couple of hustlers in New York who have uh, dreams of having a great political influence, guys in the real estate business. Yeah, we're going to ask you, we're going to ask you some questions yeah. about that in a little bit. So. Um, so hang on. So hang on <laughs> okay. That. Um, I want to go back to that word that I'm not pronouncing very well. Librettist. 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 Is that it? How you pronounce and, it? Yeah. And this goes back to Madison. We both know Madison. And right. uh, I wanted to know how, how did you meet her? What, what's your involvement with her and that word? And the librettist. Yeah, well, that that's another case of just doing it. I had been working on a story uh, uh, about this uh, very interesting character that somebody told me about in the world of opera. I have a very uh, ancillary connection to the world of opera. There's maybe three or four I know that I like, but no depth to, to my knowledge. Mm-hmm. But somebody told me about a guy named uh, Lorenzo de Ponte, who was the guy who wrote all the lyrics to Mozart's Italian operas. You know what? I know, I know I'm going to stop you there because we're going to get into a good question about him too. So let's just okay, stay. So, yeah, so I, that that's an exciting forward. part of this interview. And I want to highlight that when we get to yeah, it. Yeah, because it's so interesting. So jumping forward, I was going to need some opera singers. <laughs> and I, and in where we live in Accord, New York, nearby is a town called Phoenicia that has a big program about opera and singers. And I was following them on Instagram uh-huh. and Madison kept popping up on Instagram. And I said, man, she looks terrific. She's great. She has a lot of energy. Let me send her a DM, which, you know, uh, one out of a thousand times you get a response to. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, everyone don't DM Madison. Uh, you know, she's very busy. And <laughs> But I reached out to her and told her about this project. And we started talking. And uh, suddenly we developed this uh, friendship. And she wanted to hear some of the music that was created, some of the songs I had written with a composer. Mm-hmm. And she asked if she could uh, premiere one of them at a benefit down in Florida. And oh, okay. uh, I said, sure. So uh, that's kind of how we met. We've never actually met in person. Um, everything has been done over the phone or uh, uh, text and emails and, mm-hmm. and, and whatnot. So I, I look forward to meeting her in person because she's quite a powerhouse uh, human being and creative talent with a whole lot of charisma. Well, we really enjoyed having her on the podcast. She's an excellent guest and she's extremely talented. And, and if I could just take 10 seconds to sure. plug her. Absolutely. She's on her way 
to North Dakota to the Fargo-Moorhead Opera, where she's going to sing the lead role of Cinderella. And then after that, she's going to the Connecticut Lyric Opera, where she's singing the lead role of Julius Caesar. So Mm. she's going from Cinderella to Caesar over the course of uh, this uh, March uh, and April. And uh, she's got the the breadth and knowledge and talent to cover uh, all, all of a sudden that spectrum. And that, my friends, takes a tremendous amount of talent to pull so that off. So true. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So happy for Madison, yes. honestly, because she's gl- so I'm talented. So, thank you, Neil, for yeah. sharing that with uh, we We follow her on Instagram, and we saw some of that. But um, thank you for sharing that. That that was yeah. really, really uh, So interesting. So if you're in the area, you want to see the opera, then definitely check it out. Okay, now. And, and, she's, a, and she's a powerhouse, because when I started talking to her about this project, she said, well, when's it going to happen? Where's it going to happen? When? And it all of a sudden, like, forced me to, to jump down the, the sliding pond, you know, to, mm-hmm. uh, to, to put one thing together. I didn't want to disappoint Madison. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Understand completely on that one. Um, okay, so, Neil, I, I want to talk to you about your book that you have, um, American Gargoyles. And it's a picture book that you authored. and. I think it would be great for a child, like for a gift for a birthday or, you know, during the summertime when they need something really fun and different to read. You not only wrote it, but you also illustrated it. Um, tell us about it and why did you come to write it? Well, thanks. It's, that's such a labor of love. And it's a, a book about the the crazy uh, gargoyles, American gargoyles. So they're not gods and spirits and uh, uh, holy people, but uh, uh, sports heroes and businessmen and uh, mm-hmm. uh, comedians and actors that might be on a building in New York, an old building built in the 1920s that's, uh, that's about to get knocked down. And these bickering gargoyles have to figure out a way to to save their building and the genesis of that. And uh, just again, for your audience who thinks, mm-hmm. you know, you're hearing this, boy, this guy's a, a, a real dynamo. Pr- pretty much everything I do takes about 10 or 12 years to come to fruition. <laughs> so, uh, you know, if, if you've been writing that book and you're stuck, take it out, go back to it, leave it for two years, go back to it and you'll still be ahead of me on any of these projects. <laughs> but uh, the, the way that came about is I had a really wonderful writing job mm-hmm. at uh, HBO. It was going to be my big break and uh, uh, it was going to be a big movie. And uh, I wrote this thing and they were casting it and they had a director and it was ready to go. And then it suddenly got canceled. So uh, obviously, you know, talk about a pressure drop and uh, sure. but one thing that came out of it is they had given me an office which I've never had they gave me an office and I still had three weeks before they would throw me out of the office so uh, I said gee maybe I'll write something else but that was too depressing to even imagine so I went down to uh, the, you know the corner drugstore and got a bunch of cheap art supplies and uh, actually got some good paper and cheap art supplies and just started drawing. And, uh, you know, growing up in New York, walking down the street, seeing these faces on all these different buildings made of stone and terracotta. um, I said, gee, wouldn't it be fun to do a story about those characters, give them some life and agency and a a bunch of bickering New Yorkers up on a building who have to come together as a family. Mm -hmm. And almost like 
automatic writing and drawing, I uh, uh, created the book and its characters. Of course, uh, you know, never having done anything like this before, I didn't know that you're supposed to do the drawings and then on top do something, some kind of see-through plastic and write the words so that if you have to change the I did everything on, on the original sheet. So uh, by the time it was done, if I had to make changes, it was all about uh, white out and scotch tape and scissors, oh boy, and yeah. which, which kind of actually intrigued the publisher because it was so kind of rough and gruff and had this kind of kid-like quality to it. That I think that's part of the reason people have been uh, attracted to the piece. But, uh, you know, this was something that, again, was knocking around from the time I completed it for about 10 years mm-hmm. um, until, you know, and I thought, gee, well, this is a shoe in for every publisher in uh, New York or this or that. And I wound up finding a publisher in uh, Los Angeles, quite frankly, and uh, has had a, a, a nice modicum of success and recently was actually uh, optioned by a wonderful kids media company called Nine Story Media out of Toronto, who was uh, in the works trying to turn it into a, a musical TV special for Christmas. So, oh, wow. Uh, oh, that's terrific. That's yeah. interesting. Goodness. That's yeah. going to be exciting. So we'll you, have to, you have to let us know when that's yeah, going to take place. Yeah, that way we can let everyone oh, know. Oh, yeah. No, yeah, that'll be, I mean, that's kind of a, a dream come true. And, and, and they're very nice people. I mean, they're, uh, they're Canadian. So they call up and they say, is this okay with you? I, I, I think it's a prank call, you know. <laughs> in Hollywood, they don't call the writer and say, is this okay with you? But, right. Uh, they call you up and say, where's my check? Isn't that what they <laughs> exactly, usually say? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. But, you know, and, and, and it's a company that's become its own little powerhouse with uh, shows now. They've got a show called Karma's World on Netflix and uh, uh, deals with these different toy makers. So uh, I'm hoping to be the, the tail of the kite on this ride. Well, there's going to be some licensing opportunities there. Definitely. Then. Yeah, well, if we could sell some books, that would be great. It's a fun book. American Gargoyles, Save the Wentworth. (laughs) (laughs) You know, when we first chatted with you, you mentioned a gentleman that both Angie and I were fascinated to learn about. His name, Lorenzo De Ponte. You mentioned him just a little while ago. Yeah. Uh, Share with our listeners who this guy was and what you're currently working on when it comes to this man's life story, which I think is fascinating. Well, he's just such a character. He's the guy who actually legitimately introduced Italy and Italian culture to the United States in the early 1800s. Mm-hmm. Um, how he got to the United States was he was a very famous uh, lyricist in uh, uh, Vienna, uh, and he d- did the lyrics for all of Mozart's Italian operas. When Mozart was on the outs, this guy, De Ponte, had like seven shows running in Vienna for all different composers. Uh, and took Mozart under his wing. Uh, uh, a patron said, we have to get Mozart working again. And this guy, De Ponte, said, why? And the guy said, because I'm his landlord and he hasn't paid the rent. <laughs> oh, yes. And uh, so these guys got together and created uh, uh, The Marriage of Figaro and Don Giovanni and Cosi Von Tutti. And uh, uh, then uh, uh, De Ponte was always in trouble and was chased out of Vienna and chased all across Europe and wound up running a grocery store in New Jersey. 
uh, whereupon he then went to New York, uh, where he was legitimately the only Italian in New York, and decided he was going to uh, introduce Italian culture to New York. And luckily, uh, in a chance meeting, he met a young guy who was uh, trying to be a poet himself. Mm -hmm. And DePonte figured, I can get a free meal out of this guy and said, well, let me hear your poems. And the young guy said, "Okay, here's what I'm working on now and began. Twas the night before Christmas and all through the house. And it was a guy named Clement Moore who took him under his wing as an eccentric until uh, DePonte realized nobody believed any of his stories. And finally, late in life, he imported the Italian opera to sing for the first time in New York. So people would be introduced to Italian culture and actually believe who he was. Um, uh, this guy, DePonte, literally was 80 years old. He's buried somewhere in Queens, uh, conveniently for, for my life story. Mm-hmm. Um, he, he wrote like a 600 page uh, autobiography, which uh, serious musicologists, they want to tear their hair out because mm-hmm. he spends 20 pages scattered talking about a guy he helped out named Mozart, but spends like 80 pages talking about a guy who beat him on a real estate deal in Philadelphia. So, uh, <laughs> he, he was a kind of, <laughs> so he was my kind of crazy character who's always tripping over his own shoelaces, but, uh, nonetheless is, uh, very endearing. And, uh, I decided to, to, you know, write a story about him essentially about DePonte meeting this character in New York and DePonte in New York relating his tale of how he got there and who he is while we introduce kind of opera's greatest hits to an audience that may not have any uh, knowledge or previous Mm -hmm. interest Mm -hmm. in opera, um, sprinkled with a bunch of original songs written from DePonte's own words in his autobiography. Um, and his autobiography is quite funny and quite egomaniacal. And so writing, taking his words and turning them into lyrics was not uh, difficult. It was great fun. Mm-hmm. And the guy who's the composer is a brilliant guy named Roger Neal, who did all the music for Mozart in the Jungle, that show that was on oh, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, I like Amazon, that show. including doing all the music for King of the Hill and and. and uh, dozens of other movies and TV shows. Um, so uh, we've been having, you know, great fun sort of uh, the, uh, boiling down some original music uh, for the DePonte show interspersed with uh, some of the some of the opera songs that literally play like uh, pop tunes that you would hear today, because because mm-hmm. in those days opera was pop music people would sure. hear the music and they'd whistle it on the street and that's what uh, you know uh, th- those were the popular tunes uh, so is is this going to be yeah i'm sorry are you going to make a is this going to be a movie a play a book it was originally decided designed as a movie and that it didn't quite happen. So it got boiled down into being a play that was uh, probably 300 pages long, but now it's a, a, a play that's appropriately an hour and a half. And uh, we're going to do a, a co- sort of concert reading of it. 
in June, uh, right near uh, me in upstate New York. Uh, there's a couple of performance venues, uh, beautifully sited in, in the countryside. And so uh, Madison is going to sing one of the roles. Uh, a, a wonderful uh, uh, singer uh, named Mark Malamot, who's a very well-known mm-hmm. uh, uh, tenor with a big comedy history, is going to play DePonte, a guy named Will Remmers, who actually has a, a, a wonderful small opera company in New York called the Ot- Utopia Opera Company. Mm-hmm. He's going to help me with the staging and then sing a bunch of the roles also and play a bunch of the different roles. So with a tiny little cast, we're going to double a whole bunch of roles and do it as if it's a street corner performance in the uh, uh, you know, in New York in 1820, that's, that's going to be the vibe. Very that exciting. Really but you know exciting. what? We have to tell all of our listeners who are uh, producers, uh, anybody yeah, that works at Netflix check should this check this out. It sounds so exciting. Uh, the story or, is or exciting. Any, any video company that's interested in turning out a project that could be exceptional, HBO. HBO um, these guys need to be there. They need to watch this and then they need to create it for tv Absolutely. for a movie i could see this well, being a movie without any trouble yeah, yeah no it'll, it, it's going to be great fun i mean everybody's going to be crashing into each other because the way you do these things is you just do a couple of days of rehearsal and then put it up um mm-hmm. but uh there, there's a lot of interest from a place called the berkshire stage over in the berkshires which mm-hmm. is a, right. a, a a wonderful theater company that's been following the the progress of DePonte and a couple of uh, opera companies have said oh we want to take a look at that you know that might be something different for us to do so um it, i'll give you the exact date as we get a little closer and yeah, okay. sure. it'll be the beginning of june um in the hudson valley and uh you know uh uh, close to anybody who's around the Hudson Valley. <laughs> That'll be great. It's a beautiful time of the year there as well. Oh, yeah. So all that weather will be gone and, and the gorgeousness of summer will be there. So very good, Absolutely. timely time. Okay. So Neil, you co-wrote and directed the underground indie cult comedy called Chief Zabu, which was not only very entertaining, but a super success for you. Tell us why and how you created this. Well, again, it came from this story that Zach Norman had told me about a similar situation about a New York real estate guy who dreams of having political power, (laughs) who gets involved in this crazy international scam and scheme. Mm -hmm. Um, We didn't know that such a thing might be repeated 20 or 30 years after we made the movie, but, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but there it is. And we made this movie on a shoestring. We shot the movie in 15 days uh, of course we didn't know that when you direct your first movie conventionally it's not supposed to have uh, 43 speaking roles in 27 locations and purportedly take place in three cities and two continents and you're going to shoot it in a week and a half but mm-hmm. oh my uh, sometimes the, the less you know about something uh, the you know the more brave you are to do it mm-hmm. um so we uh, actually, uh, during the change of semesters, we took over a college campus mm-hmm. who, who let us do it if we let the students be interns on the film. So um, we shot this movie and uh, uh, showed it to people. And uh, this was in 1988, I suppose. And everybody hated it. So, uh, it, you know, it, it was pretty scruff and rough and ha- ha- didn't quite work. Uh, even though we hoped it would. And we 
locked it away and forgot about it. And some 30 years later, we said, gee, let's take a look at the movie. Maybe there's a way to recut it after 30 years of experience and knowledge. Right. And we took it out and looked at it. And it was so obvious what it needed. It needed to get 20 minutes cut out of it and focused on a main character and pulled together. And when we recut the thing and uh, showed it to people, suddenly people liked it. I mean, suddenly we're getting great reviews in the Hollywood Reporter and there was a big feature story about it in the New York Times and uh, it, it, Recently uh, passed, the wonderful director, uh, Peter Bogdanovich, gave it a lot of love and uh, wrote wonderful things about it. And uh, uh, suddenly this movie that was a kind of lost film got rediscovered and we had great fun with it um, and, and also had great fun with a, a lot of the actors who did it were still around and uh, the, we were able to see them again. Oh, fun. So, That's so uh, nice. Yeah. You can reconnect. You know, I'm going to, that's kind of a fascinating story. And it's, it really it is. goes back to something you said earlier, Neil, about just do it, stick with it. And you never know what you did several years ago might see the light of day later on in your life. So that's kind of a, that's a, a wonderful story. I'm going to ask you, every successful creative person tries to be original and authentic. I know I do. Uh, but there are times when we all have self-doubt. I know that one too. How do you manage to get through those times, the self-doubt times? That's a tough one because it it always roars, roars up and it particularly roars up if what your desired art is something you're not making any money on, you know? Right. Uh, so then you're saying, well, gee, not only... Uh, this and the other thing, but the, the marketplace has spoken, you know, mm -hmm. and you got to find some way to pay the bills. And, uh, and if you're kind of going down a rabbit hole, only trying to pay the bills with what your art is, you start actually resenting the work and the art. And it's easy to get uh, uh, very cynical and disagreeable about the world that you're functioning in, which is a world you chose to function in, whether you're a painter or a dancer or an artist or a comedian. So, mm -hmm. uh, uh, sometimes you got to put together, you know, uh, work in a restaurant, work in a bookshop. If there were any bookshops around, there used to be a million of those. I mean, those kept me alive for a long time. Um, and sometimes it takes stuff that's in your field that isn't exactly to your aesthetic, but keeps you functioning. Then in terms of how do you not have the self-doubt, you got to really double down this is a place where I will be guru. Like you really have to double down mm -hmm. on making art, whatever that art is that you like and not really care if anybody else likes it. It's your only hope. It's your only hope is to do stuff that you really believe in mm -hmm. that you really love because you're going to have to do other stuff where you're asked to chase the marketplace and you're also going to make a huge mistake when you're not asked trying to chase the marketplace. And I know for some people it works. Oh, I'm just going to write the most commercial uh, novel. And they do. And it's a huge success. And that was the right thing. But for most of the rest of our us pluggers, you know, mm -hmm. if, you, if you're going to try to sustain a love of your art, 
you just got to keep doing mm-hmm. what you believe in. Um, now, one of the things, though, that might help a little bit okay. is every time you're doing something, whether it's writing a poem, painting a picture, writing a play, or whatever, you don't have to tell the whole world you're doing it. Because that puts a whole bunch of pressure on you that you don't need. You could keep it a secret. <laughs> you know, keep it keep it quiet till you get your rhythm. Right. Till the thing is going, till you understand what you're doing, till you find it defensible to yourself. Mm-hmm. But people are real quick, and I know I've been there, oh, what are you doing next? This is what I'm doing next. And then every five minutes, people are asking you about it. Can I see it? Can I see the work? Can I see some pages? And suddenly you've added a load onto your shoulders that you really don't need. That's really a a very good advice. It's extremely true. Well, you know, kind of a joke for artists that if you want to sell your art, paint flowers. Don't paint uh-huh. what you want, you know, just go right. paint flowers. People always buy a flower shot to hang in their bedroom. Um, you you covered a lot in that. And yes, that's thank you for that, Neil. good advice. Such I'm going to try advice. to narrow this down that if if you, what would be your very best advice for people that want to live or be more creative? Now, you covered a lot, but maybe you can. But your personal advice. Your personal advice. Find someplace cheap to live. Learn how to live. <laughs> Learn how to be poor. You know, I'm serious. You know, Learn how to be poor. And then if you get any kind of windfall, just assume it's never going to happen again. <laughs> Hold on to that nickel. You know, just squeeze that nickel because uh, uh, that's in order to sustain what you do. Yeah. Um, and nowadays, it wasn't the case 20 years ago, you can be in some real, by conventional standards, oddball place where it's not very expensive to, to function and live and be in a worldwide marketplace. Um, and also, but if you you know want to go to New York or Los Angeles or Austin, Texas or Atlanta, Georgia, uh, you got to swallow your pride. If you got to rest on somebody's couch for a month or two, just uh, take that out of the equation that, gee, I'm not uh, paying the rent. <laughs> you know, go find out what it's like. Get over there. See what it's like. See what the world is. And and just kind of understand that, you know, if you're doing something like that, uh, couch surfing or living in your car or whatever, that, you know, make the most of your time. Mm-hmm. Um uh, you know, understand that in, in that situation, the clock really is ticking, you know, sure. see, see who you can meet, see what other people are doing, see how you can be helpful or, or, you know, one of the best ways to get into the business is see how you can be helpful to other people. Yeah. Help other become, reach their success and it'll lift you up too. Yeah. So true. So true. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we've come to the part in our interview where I'm going to ask you the question we ask all of our guests. I'm already, I'm always fascinated by their answers. But the question is, if you could sit on a park bench and chat with anyone from the past, who would it be? Well, um, a couple of years ago, and then I'll get to who it'll be. Okay. <laughs> I, I would have said Larry David, but you know, we, there was a big writer's strike a bunch of years ago, and I found myself walking the picket line 
next to Larry David, both of us carrying on strike signs. So, uh, you know, I got to spend 45 minutes hanging out with that guy, which was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, now, now, if you ask me, um, I, I would love to sit on a park bench with this guy, Lorenzo DePonte, and just find out all the questions you asked, because talk about somebody who had literally every up and down that a life could present. You know, uh, just what was it like, man? What you know? Just tell me about that world that I'm trying to capture. What what what's the truth? What what what's valid? What was real? And uh, and where are people exactly the same? And where are they different? That's what I'd love to know. And, and how he persevered. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he reinvented himself apparently quite a few times. Quite a few times. So, Neil, before we go, I want to thank you for sending us the American Gargoyle book and the humorous note you wrote yes. to both Hitchie and I <laughs> so and the illustrations. Those they, those were priceless. I mean, it, it has so the book has a lot of personality anyway. Mm-hmm. But when you kind of put that little personal touch, personal in the touch beginning. to it, that, that was priceless. Yes, That's very that. cool. We thank you so much for that. Uh, you guys are the greatest. Oh, well, thank you. Well, before we completely wrap up this episode, Neil, I just wanted to mention, I think my favorite character is Lizzie in your American Gar- Gargoyles book. Um, She's the greatest. So fun. The, fu- the book is so fun. It's very organic feeling, and it's definitely a must read. I think anyone would really enjoy it. Even if you're an adult, you would love it. Yeah. And thank you, you for guys. the cool illustrations in the, in the front that where you uh, did your author, what do you call that, it, writing? <laughs> yeah, the, yeah, well, the, yeah, the American Gargoyle, it's my happy place. It's so, it, it just speaks to me. It's easy and it's, it, it's, it's, you know, it's just great. And I love doing those drawings and those characters. So oh, you can tell. I really appreciate that. You can tell it's just a, a labor of joy and we can, you can see it when you read it. Um, Okay, so I need to let everyone know, if you'd like to know more about Neil Cohen, we will have links for him under the show guest tab on thoughtrobepodcast.com. And that way you can learn more about him and connect with him on social media and his website and discover his talent and and his book, American Gargoyles. Yeah, it's a fun word, though, isn't it? It's a fun word. Thank you, Neil. I trip over it all the time also. Thank you, Neil, for being with us. We really appreciate your time and all the stories you shared with us. And you are a very talented man. Yes, thank you, Neil. Uh, Thank you so, so much. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye. I'm really glad you tuned in today. We hope you enjoyed the thoughts and ideas we shared with you. We post a new podcast every week, so remember to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, both Rod and I would really appreciate you buying us a cup of coffee. Just go to thoughtrow.com, scroll down a bit, and you can find that link right on our website on the homepage. It's really easy to do, by the way. Yes, it is. Um, And all the money we receive goes to our production costs. Yep. And primarily because we want to keep our show commercial free and we want to continue to bring you the best quality content with great guests. That's right. Thank you for listening to Thought Row Podcast. So it's bye for now from my husband Rod and I, wishing everyone a great day. <laughs>